Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be with you. Um, I would like you to please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 this morning. And um, it's my uh, <laughs> great privilege and responsibility to be preaching on a, a tough di- uh, uh, giant this morning called divorce. And um, Joe was very excited for me to take this one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so out of brotherly affection, um, I agreed. No, no, it was, I grabbed the opportunity to come this morning and to preach on it. So um, I uh, <clears throat> want to remind you, this Sermon on the Mount, it is Jesus' words to his disciples. If, what is a disciple? It's a follower of Jesus. In other words, a Christian. And if you consider yourself to be a Christian, your call on your life is not to be a famous person. It's not to be a wealthy person. It's not to be a popular person. Your call on your life, if you are a Christian, is to follow a man called Jesus. And can I point out to you in these six giants that Jesus talks about, the lifestyle that he calls us to is not just the world plus a little bit of goodness. It's not just the world plus a little bit of niceness or politeness. It is a standard of righteousness that when Jesus compares it to, he takes the most holy people in his day, the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says, if you want to look at the people that everybody thought were so holy, he said, look at those guys and understand that the life I'm calling you to is much higher. And why can Jesus say that? Can I say to you today, if you are a Christian, if you've come to faith in Jesus, God has worked a miracle in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who you are is not your old self. Do you believe that this morning? I challenge you this morning. Jesus is talking about a standard where he's saying, for the Christian, this is not something that anybody other than the person has the power of the Spirit can live it out. Because as we're going to see this morning, his standards of righteousness is so much higher than what these Pharisees and scribes could achieve in their day. Why? Because of what Christ has done in his disciples, which is the giving of the Spirit. And Jesus does it in two ways. He shows us first what it was like to live under that law of Moses. Anyone here heard of the Ten Commandments? Hey? Can I say to you this morning, and it's a problem in East London, it seems to be rearing its head again. If anybody tells you to keep the law of Moses... You tell them, I'm very sorry that that standard's too low for me. Because in this Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 onwards, Jesus is showing how if you will live by the Holy Spirit and under his authority, his words, Jesus Christ, your life will far exceed what these men and women were saying by keeping the law. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit in just a moment. But Jesus picks... Six very important comparisons where he shows what the life under the law is like versus life under the Spirit and his authority and power in our lives. And the first giant was unrighteous anger and reconciliation. Wow. In our country, you can see anger tearing our country apart, right? Today, we're going to look at how it tears marriages apart. There's lust. Oh, man, our society is obsessed with sex, right? And then today, we're going to look at divorce. And I want to point out the courage of Jesus this morning. He is not afraid to go where other people are afraid to go. And and let me tell you, in this pulpit, if the preacher's worth his weight in salt, he will be willing to go where Jesus wants to go. And can I tell you this morning, where Jesus wants to go is marriage. 
he wants to, wants to speak into marriage. And this thing of divorce, it is a very, very difficult topic because it's very sensitive and it's very real in our society today. But can I just encourage you, because Jesus wants to go there, we need to go there, right? Do you believe this morning every word that Jesus says is for our goodness? It's for our benefits. And I want to unpack this morning this thing of divorce in three ways. I want to look at the passages of Scripture dealing with divorce. I want to look at their purpose and principle that comes out of those Scriptures. But I want to, most importantly, I want us to apply this teaching on divorce to people. Can I say, in my studies of this section, how amazed I am at how cold and theoretical and unpastoral these academics can be when they talk about real-life people and real-life struggle. We have to be pastoral in the way we approach divorce. This is not a theory. It is a massive component of people's lives. And before you switch off and say, well, I'm not married yet. Why on earth must I listen to this? Or I'm, I'm happily married. Or maybe I just want to put the past behind me. Why is this guy pulling me back into what was so painful for me? Well, I have five very good reasons today to talk on divorce that applies to everybody. The first is this. If you are not yet married, one day, God willing, you will be. And you will need to know what you're in for. The second is, we have all been affected by divorce directly or indirectly. I said to the guys last week at Sterling, growing up in PE, you know that PE, when I grew up, had the highest divorce rate in the world. I had about two friends I can remember whose parents were still together at school. And some of us have experienced divorce directly or indirectly. But the third is this, I have married the most incredible woman. Her name is Marina and will be married for six years in November. But even my amazing wife and I have learned that there is no marriage here that will not face storms. Not so? You need to know the rules of engagement. Because they will determine how much effort you are willing to put into to stay together. The fourth is this. Maybe you've gone through a painful divorce. And it, no matter, it's, it's 50 years ago. It doesn't matter how long ago it is. But you've never had a peace of knowing, is divorce acceptable to God? Is it legitimate? Is your conscience clear before God? Maybe you've got some questions about that and you're wanting to find peace. Where does God stand on divorce and how much can you have peace in terms of your decision going forward with your life? Ah, but the fifth is this. Is contending for marriage in the church as a whole. It matters to the gospel. Why is marriage so important to the church? It's because marriage is intimately connected to this thing called the good news. And I want to start there today. Contending for marriage is contending for the gospel. Now, what is God's ideal for marriage? What are we talking about when we're contending for marriage? What are we talking about? We're looking at Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, and it's the moment when God talks about marriage and there is no sin in the world. It's perfect relationship. It's God's plan A for creation. And he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus commenting on this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, it's, he says here, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Shame, Mama, you're right. This might be for you, so come back. <laughs> 
I'm just joking. Could we maybe put an aircon on here? It is so hot in here. Oh, it would be really great if we could turn some aircons on. Thanks, Gary. So, coming back to God's ideal. Therefore, in God's eyes, God wants marriage. Ah, that's it. Crank it up there. Can you turn it down a little bit, maybe to 23, 22? There we go. Thanks, Gary. Okay. So, what is God's ideal for marriage? It is heterosexual. In other words, it is between a man and a woman. It is monogamous, meaning it's between one man and one wife. It's permanence. In other words, you have to hold fast to that person you said, I do too. You have to hold fast to them, brother and sister. And it is exclusive. It's meaning one flesh. Nobody shares Marina with any, I don't share Marina with anybody else. It's just her and me. We are one flesh in the Lord. And can I say, the reason why this is so special and the reason why we guard it as the church is because marriage is what happens to you and me when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing? You and I were born separated from God, far away from Him. There was God and there was you. And God in His loving mercy came after you and began to draw you towards Himself. And there was a day when the love of God found you and helped you to have faith in the Son of God. And in that second, Romans 6 verse 4 says, We were buried therefore with Him, with Jesus, by baptism into His death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. In other words, this is what happened. This is what happened. You were separate from God, and God's love found you and showed you Christ. And the second you came to faith, that old self died, and you were born again. And, and the two became one flesh. You became one with Jesus. You became one with the Son of God by the Spirit. Belinda, the old Belinda died. The second you came to faith, that person doesn't exist anymore. And when you were born again, when Belinda was born again, she was born into this oneness with Jesus. If you are a Christian and you've come to faith, you're not your old self with a bit of touch-up or panel beating. No, no. You're entirely a new person and the Spirit of God has given you a new life. And you are one with Jesus. You are covered in the Son of God. You are baptized into His life as you are baptized into His death. You know what baptism is? When you plunge somebody into the water, you have been plunged into Christ. And what God has joined, let no man separate. Can I share what Jesus says through Paul in Romans 8 verse 35? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Or the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor present things to come nor the future nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What God has joined, let no man separate. Now, don't those words sound like something familiar? I looked at the marriage vows I made Gary and, Gary and Joe make. 
This is what they had to say to each other. Today, I call all your present to witness that I take you to have and to hold in good times and bad times, plenty in times of need, sickness and health, and I promise to love and respect you as long as we both shall live. Doesn't that sound like a marriage vow, Romans 8? Do you know what Romans 8 is to us, church? It's God's salvation vow to you and me in what God has joined let no man separate. And we contend for marriage, even as unmarried, doesn't matter, because it proclaims our position in Christ. You are one with Jesus. And what God has joined, let no man separate. And the more we gaze into this marriage covenant, the more we understand God's unconditional love for us and the absolute security of our position in Christ. Can anything here break the vow of God this morning? Can anything separate you from the love of Jesus? Can you invent anything in creation, as Paul said, that can snatch you from the hands of your Savior this morning? Anything? Nothing. And the fact, can I point out something here? In fact, do you know that we are all going to be married, whether you are single, dating, engaged, marriage, divorced, remarried, doesn't matter. There is no Christian who is single anymore. Ever thought about that? Because we are vowed, we are set apart for another. His name is Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. And the sign that God is going to keep his salvation vow is at the end of all things. We call it the consummation of all things when the bridegroom, Jesus, comes to fetch his bride. Do you know what the sign of God keeping his salvation vow is going to be? Is a wedding feast. Is one day you and I are going to be married to Jesus and the sign of us enjoying all eternity, never being separated from the presence of God, never being separated from his kingdom, enjoying heaven and the new earth in all of its fullness is a wedding. Isn't that amazing? You are going to be permanently in eternity celebrated and signified as a wedding feast. And that's why in the Old Testament, when Israel wandered from God, it was called adultery. God's saying, you're my people. I've come for you. I've made a covenant with you. I've made a vow with you. We've entered into a covenant. And when you wander from me, it's so serious. God sees it as adultery. Because that's how tightly you are covenanted to him in Christ. And so today, church, Marriage is not just for those who are married. Married is a proclamation of what we believe in the gospel, that what God has joined, let no man separate. Amen? And so when we're contending for marriage, whether it's a single person, whether it's even a divorced person, doesn't matter what your state of life is, what you are saying is, I'm contending for this covenant because it displays my position in Christ and what's going to happen to me, what, regardless of my station in life, I'm going to be vowed to Jesus Christ and one day I'm going to meet the one I'm vowed to, face to face. And if marriage, this is the flow of Matthew 5, if marriage is kept in such high ideal, why does divorce happen? Why does divorce happen? Well, remember first and foremost, giant one in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 26. I'll tell you why. Marriages break up. It's when one spouse is angry at another 
and neither of them are willing to put down their weapons. Not so? Can I say to you this morning, if you're angry and you don't deal with that anger and you let it breed, it's going to lead to divorce. It will. The second is this. It's lust. And when you see that nice bookie or that nice guy and you're, oh, they're very nice. And they're so much sexier or younger or better looking than the one you've got. What does Jesus say? Even if you're just looking, mm, you're not tasting, you're just looking. What happens in our hearts is this, is you start to become discontent with the one you got. Mm, not so? In Christian circles, it happens. You see that nice Christian husband, the nice Christian wife, and you're, why can't I have him or her? Can I say to you today, if you're not careful about lust, it will lead you where you should not be going. And some people divorce. They haven't even tasted the pudding, but they think the pudding's better than what they've got. And God's saying, uh-uh-uh, be careful. Be careful. It's going to block the kingdom coming into your life if you don't deal with lust, and it will break up your marriage. And then the fourth thing, which Kath's going to be preaching on here next week, it's keeping your word. Jesus is in the next giant. Giant number four is let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let me tell you now. Let me tell you now, when you said I do before God, God takes you seriously. You are one flesh with your spouse. And marriage is not a matter of convenience of, oh, when this little model wears out, I'll go looking for another one. No, no, it's not a dealership. It's a done deal. God will hold you to that covenant. And if you are any less serious about that, it will lead to calamity in your marriage. And I want to unpack this morning, what do I mean by divorce? What does Jesus mean? When I talk about divorce, or when Jesus mentions it in Scripture, it means the right to remarry with a clear conscience. When will God let you off the hook in that marriage vow? That's the question. And so Jesus starts here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. We're going to start what he does by starting with the Mosaic law, then he compares his teaching. So let's read together in verse 31. It says, it was also said, he, this is Jesus speaking, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Very odd. Ah, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Hectic. What does Jesus mean here? Well, let's start with his unpacking of the law. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 to 4, and it worked like this under Moses. Moses says, if your wife commits some indecency, now we're not sure what that indecency means. You can just write a little piece of paper and say, I don't want you anymore. You're divorced. Bye-bye. And the reason why that law was so profound was in the Middle Eastern times, all women were nothing. They were nothing. They were basically baby producers, cooks, and play toys. And some of you might still feel the same 2,000 years later where your husband just kind of rocks up and you have to do all of that. But today I want to tell you, in those days, women had no protection. And so when Moses says, man, you have to write that certificate of divorce, what he's saying is you can look after. That woman can, can start again because the only way she could earn any money was by marriage. They had no other voice. Everything that happened in Israel had to go through their husbands. And it also forced that husband to think carefully. If Joe decided to write a certificate of divorce to Alyssa, God forbid, he could never have her back. No matter how much, he might have gone, oops, sorry, I've made a mistake. Or her second husband dies and he wants her back. Moses is saying, you have to think very carefully when you break covenant because if you write that certificate, you can never have that woman back. It's done. The one flesh is broken. 
And Jesus, in talking about divorce, was not talking about adultery because under the Mosaic law, if you had some shenanigans outside of your marriage, you got the death penalty. So when he, he's talking about divorce, he's not talking about adultery. He's saying if adultery assumes the marriage is open, over because if you got caught as a man or a woman, the people would line you up, have rocks, and throw you stones and, until you died. That's how it worked. Now, in Jesus' day, there were two schools of how people looked at this strange law. And the two rabbis, the one rabbi was Rabbi Shimei. And this guy said, when Moses talked about this indecency in which qualified for a certificate of divorce, it could only be something serious, some massive misconduct. Ah, but there was another guy called Rabbi Hillel. And the Pharisees loved this guy because he said, you could divorce your wife for cooking a bad meal. Where's Marina? The first meal she cooked me, she burnt. There you go. She's waved. I won't go further than that. But I could have gone to Marina and say, bye-bye, my love. I don't want you in my home. That meal was disgusting. Here's your certificate of divorce. If your wife made you look bad socially, or maybe she got a bit saggy, or maybe there was some aspect of her life that you didn't think was really entertaining anymore, you could divorce her. And the Pharisees loved that because why? They could have marriage on their own terms. And they asked Jesus, Jesus, where do you fall? Do you fall into the one that says serious misconduct? Or do you fall in the one that says the man has all the power and authority? And no matter what it is, he can decide that he can divorce his wife. And Jesus will not be drawn into their discussion in Matthew 19. What does he do? He doesn't go back to Moses. He goes back to the creation and he says, from the beginning, it was not like this. He refuses to be drawn into the loophole of divorce. He says, no, no. We need to focus on God's ideal for marriage. And can I just say today, this is very important. Divorce is never commanded in Scripture, ever. It is always a concession. In other words, God will say in the light of sin, when there's a slip, I'll let you off the hook. But it's never his ideal. So where does Jesus then stand in this thing of divorce? Well, he says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is Jesus doing here? Well, I can, we have a, a good clue already. Do you know that every time Jesus speaks, he goes higher than the law. He says, in the law, don't commit murder. Under me, don't even get angry. Jesus says, under the law, don't commit adultery, but under me, don't even look lustfully at a woman. Oh, if he says in marriage, you could write a certificate of divorce, let me tell you, Jesus is saying, except, it's almost watertight, except for sexual immorality, God's going to keep you to your vow. Nothing's going to break that one fleshness. Oh. And when Jesus says, if you as a guy, on any other grounds other than sexual immorality, divorce your wife, you make her vulnerable to adultery. Why? Because if it's not on sexual immorality, God has not released your vow and you are one in God. And when you kick her out of your life and out of your marriage vow, if she finds another man and she marries him, she's committed adultery. Why? Because in God's eyes, you're still one. And so if you marry a divorced woman, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery and whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her vulnerable to adultery. Are you with me? 
That's how powerful the vow is under Christ. Do you see that this morning? Now, the standards of Jesus for marriage is extremely high, but how, how do we pastorally, I'm talking about somebody who comes to me and says, help me understand Jesus' teaching on divorce in real life. I'm hoping you're asking the question, life is not perfect, right? People are not perfect, right? Your spouse is not perfect, right? And I guarantee you they think the same about you. And this section in Matthew 5, it's part of five texts in Scripture that we need to look at as a whole to apply Jesus' teaching. And if we never had the Gospel of Matthew, the two other areas in the Gospels of Mark chapter 10, verse 2 to 12, and Luke verse 16 to 18, it gives no exception. If we don't have, did not have the Gospel of Matthew, no matter if your husband beat you, no matter if your wife cheated on you over and over, if that was all we had, God's covenant stands. Oh, but praise God. There's Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 to 32, and 19, verse 3 to 12, where Jesus gives an exception for sexual immorality. The fifth one for me is one that's very surprising. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 to 16, where Paul goes further than Jesus. Jesus says, unless there's sexual immorality, there can be no divorce. Paul faced a pastoral crisis in his churches. Wait, can I just point out what it cost to be a Christian in those days? Often it would be women. Paul, they would hear Paul, one of the people preaching the gospel, and they would find Jesus, and they would accept him as their Lord and Savior, and their husbands would find out, and Christians had no protection under the Roman law. In actual fact, they were persecuted. They were considered a cult, and what would happen is they would arrive back either to a locked door or an empty house. Can you imagine that? For the sake of Christ, they lost their children, they lost their marriages, they lost their homes, they lost their livelihoods, they lost their dignity. In order to have Jesus, they had to leave them, they, they lost their families. It was called desertion. And Paul said, in light of what had happened, and the brokenheartedness of what this desertion caused, let them remarry. How do we pull this all together? Well, the first thing we see is that nowhere in the New Testament, you can look at all of the scriptures, is God's ideal for marriage ever diluted. Can I say that? Did you hear me on that? Nowhere in scripture is God's ideal for marriage reduced. Divorce is never commanded. It is only a concession. It is considered second best or the lesser of two evils, as one commentator says. And when you read your New Testament, this is important. When you read your New Testament, you get the sense of when I say I do, it is a done deal. God mysteriously binds you to your spouse. And the reason why it is so important is because, can I say to you this morning, unless you have that mindset when you get married, Joe and Gary, when I married them, God was not saying, maybe if Gary gets a bit old and forgetful, Joe can kick him out the door. Or maybe Gary could say, when Joe gets a bit irritating, or when she gets a little bit snappy or bossy, I can kick out the door. No, no, what God is saying is, when you say, I do, it is till death do us part. 
can I say to you, unless you have that understanding of your marriage, it will not last. There is no back door when we say I do. That's what Scripture is trying to tell us. Can I read you a quote of what D.A. Carson says? Listen to this. Our society, including many professing Christians, has rejected biblical conceptions of both love and marriage. Love has become a mixture of physical desire and vague sentimentality. Marriage has become a provisional sexual union to be terminated when this pathetic pygmy love dissolves. How different is the biblical perspective? In God's word, marriage and love are for the tough-minded. Marriage is commitment, and far from backing out when the going gets rough, marriage partners are to sort out their difficulties in the light of Scripture. They are to hang in there, improving their relationship, working away at it precisely because they have vowed before God and man to live together and love each other for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death separates them. Love is determined commitment to seek the other's good, to cherish, shelter, nurture, edify, and show patience with one another's partner. Isn't that beautiful? And this commitment worked out because of deep-rooted obedience to God brings with it all the emotional and sentimental aspects of love as well. Do you know what will guard your marriage is when you both commit to realizing your spouse is the best you've got? I don't care how much you don't like their behavior. If they are faithful to you, you cannot look anywhere else. You cannot go, mm, I wish they were like that. Or I wish. No, no, what God is saying for your marriage and for my marriage, your spouse is God-given. They are your soulmate. They are God's best for you. You've got to work at it because there's no other option. Amen? Some of us have miserable marriages, can I just say, because we are so discontent. And so what happens is when there's discontentment, you justify your neglect of your partner. But God is saying, you make every effort in this covenant because it is good for you. God's not going to release you. And the more you invest in your marriage, the more you prosper. Not so. The more you serve your wife, the more you get. The more you lay down your life for your husband, the more you get. Because this thing, it's watertight. And God's saying, your grace in your life is flowing towards your partner. Nowhere else. If you want to know where God's going to be answering your prayers, it's grace flowing from you to your wife or to your husband. No one else outside of your marriage. In actual fact, I'll put it as strong as this. God's kingdom purposes in your life is flowing towards your spouse. And therefore, can I say and be very clear, but gently, but, but very clear on this. Jesus clearly shows us that mere irreconcilable differences, unhappiness in marriage, frequent batting of heads, not seeing eye to eye, having fallen out of love, saying it's time to move on, or wanting different things in life, or not having a connection anymore, or health issues, so that you can say, this is not the person I married anymore, is no grounds for divorce. Did you hear me on that? Did you hear me on that? If your spouse is faithful to you, you and I are bound. 
And if we divorce them under these circumstances, I'm telling you, society talks rubbish. This thing of marriage being a matter of convenience, and I just don't feel like it anymore, it's total trash. If we divorce them under these circumstances, we will grieve the Holy Spirit. And do you know why this is so important? Is John Stott puts it like this. He will not meet with anybody. Well, he's dead now. He did not meet with anybody if they wanted to talk about divorce. He says, I'll meet with you if you're willing to talk marriage and reconciliation first. And these pastors, you've pastored people for decades, they came to this realization that many marriages can be saved. If there's an understanding that we have to work at it because this is whom God has given me. Amen. And can I say to you today, even, listen to me carefully now, even if your spouse has committed adultery and you have the right to divorce and they come back broken and repentant asking for forgiveness and reconciliation, you have a choice. Because God never commands divorce. Even in adultery, God asks you to consider the possibility of forgiveness. Can I ask you a question this morning? Is adultery an unforgivable sin? Is it? Is adultery an unforgivable sin? Can I remind you of a story in the Old Testament of a guy called Hosea? And God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. And this doesn't have to be your story. I'm saying this is a story where God tells this man, marry this wayward woman. And over and over again, God tells him to go after her, to go after her, to go after her, to go after her. And what does God say through Hosea's life? This is my love for you, Israel. Can I ask you a question this morning? How often has God have to, had to go after you in your life? How often has God, in your and my unfaithfulness, in committing adultery against His name, come after us? He's come after us again and again and again, let me tell you, and His covenant has been steadfast. And if marriage is to represent this covenant, I ask you this morning, if you have the right to divorce, as God could do to us, He could say, I've had enough. That's it. I've, I'm throwing in the towel with you. I'm no longer going to keep you as mine. I'm cutting you off from myself. Oh, man. If God is unwilling to throw His rights at us, but lay them down in Christ, I ask you today, can we not do the same for a spouse that has slipped? Ah, I'm taking up time. I'm used to preaching in Sterling. So I'm going to land on this last big point. However, although we see that the New Testament always upholds the ideal of marriage as first prize, we do see that God is so gracious towards brokenness. 
Jesus' concession in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 allows, this is amazing, allows the innocent spouse who has had adultery committed against them to start again. That for me is profound. Is that there is place in God's grace to say there can be a new beginning. And Jesus, remember, almost sets a standard here. And I want to just point out, if you're still with me, is that I believe Paul picks up on this graciousness of Jesus when he says, in the midst of this pastoral crisis of these New Testament churches, he says, in the midst of this brokenheartedness, let God's grace allow a new beginning. Don't you think it's profound that Paul goes against the words of Jesus? If I put that in inverted commas. Jesus says, no exception, sexual immorality. But Paul, this apostle, by the power of the Holy Spirit, exercises this gospel wisdom and says, in this brokenness, if we believe the gospel, God moves into brokenness. And where these things are ripping, this area is ripping these New Testament churches apart. When their spouses, unbelieving spouses, are de deserting these believing spouses. Paul says, in this brokenness, let's, let God's grace move into that and let there be a fresh start. I believe, he's picking up on what Jesus says. There can be a new start for those who have been sinned against. And should we exercise the same pastoral wisdom that Paul did in applying the gospel to brokenness? I say yes. Yes. And when there is violent, physical, emotional, and mental abuse, where there's sexual abuse in a marriage, where there's substance abuse and deprivation of the household, when the safety and sanity of a spouse and children are at risk, and when a spouse is being shattered, crushed, broken by these things can we exercise pastoral wisdom like paul to offer them a way out and a new start yes yes because god comes to the rescue of the broken that does not dilute the marriage vows my friend paul upholds it firmly in 1 corinthians 7 but he does allow space for a new start you with me? So, I have got, just landing it, two very simple things to say. If we are going to enter into the kingdom purposes for our lives, if you are unmarried, if you are married, if you are remarried, if you are divorced and wanting to get remarried, can I say, will you commit today to God's standard of marriage? My friend, you are one flesh with your spouse. When you say, I do, you are saying to that person, one flesh. If they cannot commit to that standard, don't marry them. But secondly, can I say this? And maybe that first point is for somebody here. Are there any marriages here on the rocks? Grace will flow to this commitment of oneness. Work at it. Get professional help if necessary. Reconcile if necessary. But we must commit to the standard of marriage in the church. But secondly, if you got divorced, please hear me on this. This is important. If you got divorced, 
for any other reasons other than what Jesus says, sexual immorality, or when there were these extreme cases of brokenness. I emphasize extreme. I'm not talking about it. I just don't like the way they speak to me anymore. If you got divorced on any other grounds other than those exceptions, friends, this morning, Jesus calls it adultery. And I ask you, have you confessed and repented of that in your life? Have you said to Jesus, Lord, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And if that is you, and God has been gracious to allow you a remarriage with children, please don't do what some of these crazy preachers are saying, that you've got to divorce your second wife and go back to your previous spouse and break up that marriage because you're one with that person. Please don't do that. It's rubbish. It's nonsense. What you do is what that adulterer in John chapter 8 was told. Remember that lady caught in adultery? And people wanted to stone her. They wanted to apply the law. And Jesus said, anybody who sinned cast the first stone. Remember that story? Do you notice what Jesus, how Jesus handles adultery? This is how we handle adultery in the church. And I believe the same thing. Remember, it's on grounds even for those that divorce because of adultery. If you divorced on any of these grounds, other than these grounds or exceptions, it's adultery. But notice what Jesus says. He says to her, neither do I condemn you. He says, but go and sin no more. He doesn't say to her, go back to that man that you slept with and marry him. You're one with him. You're one flesh with him. No, no. He doesn't say, go back and break up that marriage, whatever that context is. He doesn't moralize her. He doesn't tell her she should have done. She needs to do. She has to do. He doesn't do any of that. What he says to her is this. He says, listen here. I won't condemn you. But what you've got to do is go and sin no more. Which means that now, in this second marriage, where God has even permitted you to find another spouse, you treat that spouse as though it's your first. Amen? You love that, that woman, that man, as though you've never loved anybody else in your life before. You show reconciliation even to your ex. You show your children the standard for marriage. You teach them the standard of marriage. Even in your, your second marriage, God might even, the third marriage, the fourth marriage. Let me tell you now, you go back and sin no more. Those sins that caused the breakdown in all those previous marriages, you say, I'm never going back. This person is one flesh with me. I treasure her as if they were my first. Amen. But you must make right with the Lord. You must say, Lord, forgive me. I've sinned. Would you restore to me the ungrieved Holy Spirit? And would you help me never go back? Today, I want to show you practically what this table means. Can I read it quickly to you? I was reading it now in worship. It's profound. Jesus says this. It says, Take and eat, this is my body, pointing to the bread. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. 
the covenants. This is God's salvation vow to you that he's going to keep you until the day of glory. When we drink this cup, we proclaim this covenant of marriage. Do you know if you are born again and you are a believer, you are the bride of Christ. I know that might be weird for some of us men, right? But can I point out to you today, God's covenanted himself to you. When you're looking your best and when you're looking your worst, he says, you come to me. This is the sign of my covenant for you. So, I want to ask you today, I'm going to speed things up a bit. Have you entered into a covenant with Jesus? In other words, have you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? This is proclaiming what has happened in your heart. If you have not done that yet, don't take it. But if you have, oh my friend, drink of the security of the covenant of Christ to you. And we must examine ourselves. Where does the blood of Jesus need to be applied to you? Perhaps it's your marriage this morning. Perhaps you came in here and you had an argument with your husband and wife. Let me tell you it happens. Not so? Or maybe you had an argument or there's something that you have to make right in your marriage. Will you come and make right before God and go make right with them? Is there something in your life that the blood of Jesus has to be applied to you? Where you say, God, I need you to wash me clean. That's what you do. And what you're saying here is, I want to live in a place that proclaims I'm yours. I belong to you. You know, marriage, you don't share yourself with anybody else. Not so? If you're sharing yourself with anybody else, that's what's called sin. Is you're saying, when you drink this cup, I belong to Jesus only. I live for him only. I'm bound to him only. We're one flesh. Amen? Good. So will I ask, would you help hand these out? Would you consider where the blood of Jesus needs to be applied to in your life? Where you need to make right? Where you've broken this covenant by sharing in sin, and then would you drink in the security of coming back to the one who loves you, the one who says, what can separate you in, from the blood of Jesus, from the love of God? Is there anyone here this morning who is struggling with doubt? Doubt whether God loves them. Maybe you have wandered from the Lord. You're never quite sure if, you've, if you're really saved. This morning, as you take the bread, as you taste it, as you drink the cup, as you taste this grape juice, would you taste the love of God for you? What can separate you from the love of Christ? Can hardship or persecution in heights or depths or powers or principality, anything in all creation, what can separate you from the love of Christ? He's bound himself to you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning we would do honor to this grace 
this grace given to us. We don't belong to anybody else. We're one flesh with you, Jesus. We pray that we would let no one else into this covenant. Where we've sinned, God, forgive us. Lord, where we've committed adultery spiritually in our hearts, would you forgive us? Lord, this resembles our covenant to you. We belong to no one else, Lord. We live to please no one else. We share ourselves with no one else, God. Jesus, we are yours, bought with your body and blood. This morning, Lord, I pray we would know the security of being yours. Sharing our love, our first love with no one else. Experiencing, Lord, the security of being hemmed in behind and before by the love of God in Christ Jesus. I pray for those who have a guilty conscience as they taste this bread and drink this cup. Would you quieten them with the love of Jesus? I pray for those, Lord, who need to go and make right with anybody in their lives. I pray as they experience being made right with you through Jesus, they'd be able to extend that to every relationship. Lord, I pray that we would extend the grace we receive now to those around us. We love you, Lord. We're thankful for this incredible security in Jesus. Let's eat and drink together. Lord, seal this blessing in our hearts. Let us just enjoy you, Lord, this week. Enjoying you, Lord, being one with you, not sharing our affections with anybody else except you. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.